This is a podcast from the Bartlett Review, sharing new ideas and disruptive thinking for the built environment. Brought to you by the Bartlett Faculty of the Built Environment at University College London. When you introduce fundamentally different types of transport, it's very difficult to establish what the benefits will be, even though it's all too easy to count the cost. My view is it's important that we discuss the value and leadership around complex infrastructure projects to avoid what has happened to High Speed 2. When you build an infrastructure project, it's unique and the prototype is also the final product. There's no chance to test a first model. Hello. I'm Preeti Parikh, a Professor of Infrastructure Engineering and International Development and Director of the Bartlett School of Sustainable Construction. In this podcast, we'll be talking about the future of High Speed 2 rail project for the UK, following the government's recent decision to abandon the original plans for the project. The line between Birmingham and Manchester has been scrapped, and we don't know whether the tracks between Old Oak Common and Euston Station in central London will be completed. With me to discuss this are two of my colleagues from the Bartlett School of Sustainable Construction, John Kelsey and Tim Broyd. Professor John Kelsey is an expert on major projects and also delivers curriculum for our major infrastructure delivery MBA program. Tim is a professor of built environment foresight with long experience of industry. His work focuses on issues of digital transformation of the construction and infrastructure and he's past president of the Institution of Civil Engineers. Welcome to both of you. It's good to be here. It's very nice to be here. Wonderful to have you both. I want to dig straight into costs because I know that this is a question on everyone's mind. So John, why was the initial budget so inaccurate? Decisions have been made on the basis of costs, but what are the wider benefits? Uh, From my own experience on the Channel Tunnel, uh, I encountered many complexities and technicalities that could not reasonably have been foreseen. Uh, Research shows that costs in projects of this type almost always are underestimated. The direct benefits overestimated, but the wider economic uh, benefits underestimated, um, which maybe is something that we should focus on namely the value, the long-term value of the project, and not just the cost. This is the Bartlett Review podcast, sharing new ideas and disruptive thinking for the built environment. So, Tim, from the project management perspective, how did we get here? Why was an inflation and high cost of the technology taken into account? They hardly ever are. I mean, we start projects, long projects, um, During the project lifetime, it is quite normal for technologies to be developed or for codes and standards to be upgraded or brought in from new. So, for example, in construction of the Elizabeth Line, formerly Crossrail, the whole of the the BIM, that's the um, Building Information Modelling Explosion, happened. Um, New standards were brought in. Um, which the project had to accommodate. But also, when the project was conceived and budgeted, 
smartphones hadn't been developed, let alone tablets, let alone the Internet of Things, um, etc. So, so long projects have to accommodate all of these things in ways that are unknown when projects are initially budgeted. And in addition to, to what John was saying about costs, um, we have a very democratic planning process in the UK. Now, what that led to in the section of High Speed 2 between London and Birmingham was a, a more than doubling of the length of line going through tunnels. Now, obviously, tunnels are, are very much more expensive than putting um, a line a across the land, but this was seen as a necessary step to allay public concern of visibility and, and retention of, should we say, a tranquil countryside. Tunnelling is not only very much more expensive, it's very much less predictable because the state of the geology and um, underground uh, is not known until you actually dig it up, um, even with a number of trial boreholes. And that, that's an interesting point uh, because with large projects, there's an expectation that we predict cost and wider benefits from the outset. But I wanted us to consider the wider implications and benefits for UK. So why was High Speed 2 conceived? I would say the benefits would be categorised into three Cs. One is capacity building, so improving the capacity of freight and services. The second C for me would be carbon, carbon reductions, because if we want to achieve carbon reductions, we need safe, affordable and reliable transportation. Uh, and the third C for me, which I think is most important, is connectivity. Good public transportation helps to connect communities to healthcare, to education facilities. So the benefits of good transportation projects are wide-ranging. Um, can I comment on the carbon? I agree with you on the connectivity um, and capacity. This is not a particularly um, green project in terms of carbon, because although there will certainly be some savings in terms of shifting traffic from road to rail, there is a huge embodied carbon in the materials that will be used and the energy used in actually constructing HS2 in the first place. But you have to remember also that railways last. They last a long time. The vast majority of, of England's strategic rail network was built between 1830 and 1860. We're still using the, the lines, in some cases uh, many of the stations that were, were built in those times, and they've lasted so far approaching 200 years. So yes, I accept that the the embodied carbon is is high. The reduction in operational carbon, if we can make a switch from road to rail, uh, and particularly in freight, and, and let's remember that whilst uh, we call it high speed two, its main purpose is really to increase capacity on the rail network, but to do things a bit faster that, than just to go hell for leather for speed. So if we can make that change, then it can make a huge difference to the the carbon emitted from vehicles. Okay, we're committed to electric vehicles within a few years' time, but we'll have a legacy of um, petrocarbon-fueled vehicles for, for some decades to come. 
that also, of course, depends overall on the decarbonisation of our electricity supply. Of course. Another interesting point, Tim, you made is about transportation, the value addition. I travelled into work using the tube. And if you look at the value addition of the tube in terms of enabling around 3 million users every day to connect to places of employment, uh, education, healthcare, I mean, how would you quantify that value addition? It's very difficult. Traditionally, we rely, we have relied on business models that have looked backwards to look forwards. When you introduce um, fundamentally different types of transport, different types of links, it's very difficult to establish what the benefits will be, even though it's all too easy to count the cost. So if you were to look into the future, Tim, what happens now? Is there a realistic prospect of High Speed 2 and other big-ticket infrastructure projects ever been built in UK? Well, never say never. The opportunity seems to have gone for the moment, but if we look at, say, the, the Channel Tunnel, that as an idea seemed to have come up once a generation since Napoleonic times. If we look at uh, a potential barrier, tidal barrage across the River Severn, that's come up every generation for about the last 150 years, initially as a rail link. So, so never say never. Um, but I think undoubtedly the the UK's standing in the world for major infrastructure projects has, has taken a bit of a dip, right? There is an increasing world population, we know that. There is an increasing trend for people to move from rural areas into urban areas, we know that. And that will carry on um, largely unabated according to all forecasts. The more that people gather together in cities, the more infrastructure we need. And, and that includes underground infrastructure. Now, with tunnelling, and there's an increase in global demand, it is a global business. And we can't forget that. It's, uh, it, we, we can't ignore either the fact that there are only two or three manufacturer facilities for tunnel boring machines, an absolutely key part. So there are whole supply chain issues in here, um, affected by geopolitics, affected by global economies. John, could we have done something differently? And if so, what? Uh, yeah, if I can just say something about the future, any new line now has to withstand not the climate of the mid-19th century, but the climate of the late 21st and 22nd centuries, which are likely to suffer far more extremes of particular types of bad weather. At the moment, if there's a single snowflake, the system grinds to a halt uh, because it doesn't happen often enough to make it worth snowproofing the line. So, but we've got to consider things like that when, when building new infrastructure. To pick up on one of the points you made there, John, about future climate. Now, traditionally, a lot of civil infrastructure, and I'm thinking of bridges, of embankments, of water-retaining structures such as dams, are designed to withstand a return period of maybe a, a one in a hundred, one in a hundred and fifty years. With climate change, the future is a lot more uncertain. You know, working uh, with the old way, if you like, with our, our, our former climate, 
we were already in the realms of extreme value statistics, um, which aren't guesses, but are sort of rather large extrapolations. If you change the background set of data, you're in an entirely new world. Returning to what could have been done differently, um, there seems to have been a procurement method which placed all the risk on the contractor. And one has to say that that's not necessarily the best way or the cheapest way of running a project, particularly where there are significant uncertainties. It's easy to question things after the event, isn't it? But I would really question why High Speed 2 was at such a higher speed than many other high speed rail systems around the world. Um, yes. Because that does provide increased geotechnical issues that need to be designed out. Yes, and it also consumes a lot more energy. The The rate of increase of energy is exponential the higher speed you go. It's not... You, you don't, it's not a case of expending twice the energy for twice the speed, it's something like eight times the energy for, for the for an increased speed. There seems to have been some problem also with the management of the project, and that obviously should be investigated, but that itself does not necessarily detract from the overall value. I want to come back to the point of the climate crisis that we are facing, because on one hand, we need to design infrastructure for an uncertain future. And on the other hand, uh, we've just put a stop to a potential project which could have led to reduction in carbon if we look at the whole life design principles. So I wanted your views on this, John. There seems to be a reluctance with this particular government to follow through on all the items of the green agenda. And you could say this, you know, this is the latest one. We have to consider um, that this is going to last, or, or it would last, um, for, as Tim said, with the existing infrastructure of 150 years at least, we would hope. And we've got to look to the future and what, what things are going to look like in the future and not look backwards, which this seems to be doing. There is, post-COVID, I should say, the rail passenger numbers have actually held up now. They've recovered almost completely post-COVID. Post we do have a post-COVID government spending crisis, but the government hasn't said, we're not going to spend this money. They've said, we're going to spend it on something else. So they obviously have the money. It, it's a question then of um, prioritising different types of projects. Yeah, and as a result of that, or maybe in addition to that, any delays on large projects cost money. You can't turn something off and then five years later turn it back on again. Putting something in mothballs is not freezing it. There is work that has to go on. The longer it gets, the more potential there is for geopolitical interference. You mentioned COVID. I would also cite the war in Ukraine as, as leading to um, a disruption in global um, economics. We've seen the, the inflation in the UK over the last couple of years. These things are really difficult to estimate in at the beginning. And sometimes you really do have to take the knock. This is the Bartlett Review podcast, sharing new ideas and disruptive thinking for the built environment.
So John, you mentioned the green agenda and how the government has failed to meet its commitment to that. But what does this mean for the leveling up agenda, especially for those who live in cities like Manchester? Um, Leveling up uh, implies that we narrow regional disparities. We have greater regional disparities in the UK than most other similar countries. So clearly some serious action is required. But the real problem is not just doing the public sector investment, it's attracting private sector investment. Private sector likes to see a consistent and continuous set of policies by the public sector in order to be confident that they can then put private sector investment into a particular area. This is particularly true of regeneration projects in cities, but also applies uh, to a wider set of industrial uh, investment. So if the government is saying we're not prepared to put this investment in the north, the private sector might well say, well, if the government isn't prepared to do this, why should we? And there is a missed opportunity here. As with the train stations, there would be potential to generate development and retail for users. And that could have been a wonderful public-private sector partnership. If you look at Hong Kong, the largest property owner in Hong Kong is Mass Transit Railway. We haven't taken these uh, these opportunities, I think, in the past. Maybe that's because of the, the time the railways were built. I'm able to hark back to a golden age that never was. But if you look back 150 to 200 years ago, then... The prize was getting to London. Quite often the the lines would be built by companies whose directors or shareholders were the landowners along the route. If you look at London, the reason why we have most of the London terminus stations where they are now is because that's where London stopped when the railways were built. And there was never then the, the f- perceived need when the railways were laid down to go east-west, it was was mainly north-south. And we're living with that legacy today, even though we're in a very different social environment. There's one thing that people forget with construction and infrastructure projects. If you look at any consumer product that you have, it's been developed, tried, tested many times over. When you build an infrastructure project, It's unique, and the prototype is also the final product. There's no no chance to test a first model. Inevitably, uh, it's going to be rather more expensive than perhaps it could have been if we'd built several of these and then used one as the model. Complexity is always an interesting challenge. I work on infrastructure projects in complex and challenging settings with high-density with high level of complexity around land ownership. And actually my personal belief is that's where our skills are most needed and required. And there is a real dark art to complexity and management and leadership of complex projects and mega projects. And my sense is that those skills might be lacking in UK at the moment. And to that end, at the Bartlett School of Sustainable Construction, we have launched a new MBA program on major infrastructure delivery, which is one of its kind. So what type of leadership do we need now to deliver mega projects and complex infrastructure projects, Tim? 
I've been involved with so-called construction improvement programs, many of them government-led, for about the last 30 years. And one issue that crops up time and time again and is agreed by industry is that there is a, a basic lack of leadership throughout the industry. Now, one of the reasons for that is, you know, John has said that all big projects are one-offs. There's hardly any training ground for people who aspire to run them, uh, other than, you know, sitting with Nelly, as the expression used to be, to learn by doing a bit of a job. With the MBA, we're taking a new route entirely. We're looking to not so much train people, but ed educate people into what it takes to run a seriously big programme. Now, this is a, a two-year programme. It's taught in modules of um, nine days to allow people who are in senior positions in their, their, their organisations to, to minimise the time away from the workplace. We have had a, a large number of very senior people in the industry, both on the supply side, the demand side, the regulatory side, etc., who have been very generous with their time and effort in helping us develop the MBA. Nearly all of them are committed to teach on it as well. And the idea is that we can educate people not only into what looks good, but what has looked bad. So that as the expression goes, we can turn bad experience into good judgment. One of the disciplines that we don't, we, we haven't traditionally brought to bear on large infrastructure projects in civil infrastructure is that of systems integration compared with, say, the aerospace industry. Um, what that means is that we tend to have projects which have sequential operations rather than totally integrated operations. So going back to the Elizabeth line, good as it is, we had a sequence of tunnelling and earth moving followed by a sequence of putting rails, etc., and followed by a sequence of putting signalling in and electrification. The government, through the Infrastructure and Projects Authority, issued a set of guidance notes in 2016 on how to start big projects. And they started with about seven modules. I won't go through them all, but there was one on governance, one on procurement, one on risk uh, management, one on asset management, etc. These were refreshed in 2021, and it was only then they added a new one on systems integration. Now, it's easy to be wise after the event. Personally, I think it would have been really good if they could have started with that module to give people uh, an overall and comprehensive framework for thinking. Leadership within the construction engineering um, industries tend to be um, dubious, if I can put it like that, a mixed experience. Uh, very possibly because contractors in particular have had to think very short term. Uh, they want to survive by the next project or the next set of projects. Uh, research does show that a lot of major issues in construction and engineering, such as safety and quality, depend very heavily on very good leadership uh, for improvement. 
uh, and it is an area where we need to concentrate very much. Beyond that, we are told by industry leaders that, yes, leadership can be taught. I'm not necessarily meaning in the way that soldiers are taught, because that's quite a brutal and abrasive way. But we believe this, and, and so we are developing a new four-year integrated um, MEng, Masters of Engineering program, on construction engineering, innovation and leadership. And we hope by doing so to develop a almost a new tribe within the, the construction sector who will start out in their careers knowing how projects work, but knowing not so much necessarily how to do everything, but at least which questions to ask and to whom these questions should be addressed. We spoke earlier about the need for public-private partnership, but I would like to add academia as the third partner, because as academia, we are responsible for building skills for the sector, uh, the future generation of leaders. So my view is it's important that we discuss the value and leadership around complex infrastructure projects to avoid what has happened to High Speed 2. I was in industry for 30 plus years before I joined UCL. And generally, there will always be exceptions, generally industry moves fast, has to move fast. Some people say that academia is a, you know, a haven of ivory towers, but it is at the very least uh, a place where you can spend more time reflecting on what is being done, reflecting on what needs to be done, and developing ways forward, very often with industry, to, to help both in terms of scope and pace. Uh, and particularly in our department, uh, scientists have laboratories. We don't have laboratories. Our laboratory is the real world of projects. And so many of us, um, as academic staff, nonetheless engage quite heavily with consultants, with contractors and with other people in the industry. Uh, so we tend to have a very practical hands-on approach, um, even uh, when we come out of Saben sometime in the Ivory Tower. Thank you, John and Tim. You both make excellent points about the role of academia. And for more information about High Speed 2 and the Bartlett Faculty of the Built Environment, you can visit us on our website at ucl.ac.uk forward slash Bartlett and follow us on Twitter or X to give its new name at the Bartlett UCL.